Mary McCarthy and John Cheever, Donald Barthelme and Vladimir Nabokov, James Joyce and James Thurber and Anton Chekhov. The year 1975 seemed an apt cutoff. It was the one and only full year of my life when I lived alone. My marriage of 22 years to a barefoot Unitarian brunette Radcliffe graduate was ending, but all of these stories carry its provenance. Perhaps I could have made a go of the literary business uh, without my first wife's faith, forbearance, sensitivity, and good sense, but I cannot imagine how. We had lived, from 1957 on, in Ipswich, a large, heterogeneous, and rather out-of-the-way town north of Boston and my principal means of support for a family that by 1960 included four children under six, was selling short stories to the New Yorker. I had in those years the happy sensation that I was mailing dispatches from a territory that would be terra incognita without me. The old Puritan town was rich in characters and oral history. Though my creative and spiritual state underwent some doldrums, the local life and the stimulation of living with growing children, with their bright-eyed grasp of the new, never left me quite empty of things to say. A small-town boy, I had craved small-town space. New York, in my twenty months of residence, had felt too full of other writers and of cultural hassle and the word game overrun with agents and Weisenheimers. The real America seemed to me out there, too homogenous and electrified by now to pose much threat of the provinciality that people used to come to New York to escape. Out there was where I belonged, immersed in the ordinary, which careful explication would reveal to be extraordinary. These notions propelled the crucial flight of my life, the flight from the Manhattan, the silver town, as one of my young heroes pictures it, that I had always hoped to live in. There also were practical attractions, free parking for my car, public education for my children, a beach to tan my skin on, a church to attend without seeming too strange. In general, I reread these stories without looking for trouble. But where an opportunity to help my younger self leaped out at me, I took it, deleting an adjective here, adding a clarifying phrase there. To have done less would have been a forced abdication of artistic conscience and habit. In prose, there is always room for improvement, well short of a Jamesian overhaul into an overweening later manner. My first editor at The New Yorker was Catherine White, who had done so much to shape the infant magazine only three decades before. After accepting four stories of mine and sending back a greater number, she, with her husband, came to visit the young Updikes and their baby girl in Oxford and offered me a job at the magazine. 
of the year or two when we shared the premises, before she followed E.B. White to Maine, giving up the high position of fiction editor. I remember her technique of going over proofs with me side by side at her desk, which made me fuzzy-headed and pliant, and how she once wrinkled her nose when asking me if I knew why my writing, in the instance before us, wasn't very good. She had made her way in Harold Ross's otherwise all-boy staff, and could be brusque, though there was no mistaking her warm heart and high hopes for the magazine. My next editor, until 1976, was never brusque. William Maxwell brought to his editorial functions a patient tact and gentle veracity that offered a life lesson as much as a lesson in writing. My fiction editor since has been Catherine White's son, Roger Angel, whose continued vitality and sharpness into his eighties gives me, at the outset of my seventies, hope for the future. All three, not to mention the unsung copy editors and fact-checkers, contributed many improving touches to these stories, and on occasion inspired large revisions, though my theory in general is that, if a short story doesn't pour smooth from the start, it never will. Though it was more than once alleged, in the years 1953 to 75, that the New Yorker promoted a gray sameness in its fiction, it permitted me much experimentation, from the long essayistic conglomerations capping the Olinger stories to the risky and risque monologues of Lifeguard. The editors published so much fiction they could run the impulsive brief opus as well as the major effort, and as William Shawn settled into his long reign, he revealed a swashbuckling streak of avant-gardism, a taste for Bartholomew and Borges that woke up even the statist in his stable to new possibilities. The technology reflected in these stories harks back to a time when automatic shifts were an automotive novelty and outdoor privies were still features of the rural landscape, and it stops well short of the advent of personal computers and ubiquitous cell phones. My generation, once called silent, was, in a considerable fraction of its white majority, a fortunate one. Too young to be warriors, too old to be rebels, as it is put in the story, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Born in the early Depression, at a nadir of the national birth rate, we included many only children given by penny-pinching parents, piano lessons, and a confining sense of shelter. We acquired in hard times a habit of work and came to adulthood in times when work paid off. We experienced when young the patriotic cohesion of World War II without having to fight the war. We were repressed enough to be pleased by the relaxation of the old sexual morality without suffering much of the surfeit, anomie, and venereal disease of younger generations. 
we were simple and hopeful enough to launch into idealistic careers and early marriages and pragmatic enough to adjust with an American shrug to the ebb of old certainties. Yet, though spared many of the material deprivations and religious terrors that had dogged our parents, and awash in a disproportionate share of the world's resources, we continued prey to what Freud called normal human unhappiness. But when has happiness ever been the subject of fiction? The pursuit of it is just that, a pursuit. Death and its adjutants tax each transaction. What is possessed is devalued by what is coveted. Discontent, conflict, waste, sorrow, fear, these are the worthy, inevitable subjects. Yet our hearts expect happiness as an underlying norm, the fountain light of all our day, in Wordsworth's words. Rereading, I found no lack of joy in these stories, though it arrives by the moment and not by the month, and no lack of affection and goodwill among characters caught in the human plight, the plight of limitation and mortality. Art hopes to sidestep mortality with feats of attention, of harmony, of illuminating connection, while enjoying, it might be said, at best a slower kind of mortality. Paper yellows, language becomes old-fashioned, revelatory human news passes into general social wisdom. I could not but think during...